0: Welcome to the Here and Now podcast. This episode is in two parts. In the first, I talk about aliens, or lack thereof, and the second, I talk about space exploration. Neither of these two topics is about psychology or philosophy but they are relevant to all those who have an interest in the continued survival of life on Earth and beyond. So bear with me, as this podcast is about exploring topics in the here and now, so that we can be well prepared for the future. And let's face it, who isn't interested in aliens? Nick Bostrom is a very clever individual. He's a Swedish scientist, come futurist, come philosopher, come expert on artificial intelligence, who from time to time publishes truly mind-bending thought experiments, which tackle some of life's most interesting questions. In 2008, he published a paper on the idea of finding life on Mars. In it, he said, If we discovered traces of some simple extinct life form, some bacteria, some algae, it would be bad news. If we found fossils of something more advanced, it would be very bad news. The more complex the life we found, the more depressing the news of its existence would be. Scientifically interesting, certainly, but a bad omen for the future of the human race. For millennia, as long as humans and our predecessors could gaze upon the heavens, we have asked the same question. Are we alone? Scores of novels, comic books, television shows and films have been made to explore this very idea. We are intrigued by it. Ask most people whether they think there is life out there somewhere. They generally say yes, if only because of the sheer scale of the universe and the fact of probability. In 1961, a radio astronomer by the name of Frank Drake came up with a formula to estimate the probability of finding intelligent life. It considers a bunch of factors, things like how many stars there are, how many stars may have exoplanets orbiting them, or how many are in the so-called Goldilocks zone where the conditions for life may exist, and so on. Since then, various scientists have worked to refine the different parameters of the formula, but the best they've come up with is that there's a 39-85% to chance that we, humans, are the only intelligent life in the universe. An Italian physicist, Enrico Fermi, who is perhaps best well known for his work on nuclear reactors and eventually the atomic bomb, posed the question that is known as the Fermi Paradox. It asks, where are all the aliens? He thought that if there are billions of stars in the Milky Way alone, and at least some of them have planets with intelligent life, and given the millions or billions of years to solve the technical challenges, why haven't they shown up yet? Maybe the answer is simply that there are no aliens. Wikipedia lists 23 different explanations for why that may be the case. But before we look at why there might be aliens, but we just don't know about it yet, let's return to Nick Bostrom to see why he is so concerned about the possibility that there are. Not only have we never seen signs of life anywhere else in the universe, we haven't even detected a radio signal or anything that could have come from intelligent life. We've been projecting radio waves into space for a while now, and listening for even longer, but so far, not a sausage. So if nothing else, that tells us that if life does exist elsewhere, it is extremely rare and intelligent life that could be capable of communicating across interstellar distances is even more so. Estimates say there are billions of galaxies in the universe and each has billions of stars, so it follows that there must be billions of planets. The Kepler satellite was launched in 2009 to look for planets, and it found a lot of them. To date, there are some 4,000 known exoplanets observed to be orbiting other stars. We're getting better at finding them. The number we know of is roughly doubled every two years for a while now. So, for all of those planets, many of which are far older than our own, there must be some with conditions at least conducive to similar forms of life seen on Earth. Beyond just what it has observed, Kepler's findings also suggest there could be up to 40 billion planets similar to Earth and in the Goldilocks zone of their star. If just 0.1% of those harbored life, that would be 40 million planets with life. Some of them aren't that far away by galactic standards. But there must also be a special source, a secret ingredient, the right combination of temperature and molecules and the time for life to emerge and the evolutionary chain to begin. For there not to have been intelligent life in contact with us, Bostrom suggests, there must be a great filter which exists either in the past or the future that must be bridged in order for life to emerge. Scientists have tried to create life by assembling all of the ingredients, but alas, life does not spontaneously appear from a collection of amino acids in solution at just the right temperature, in conditions which are thought to ex- have existed on the earth some 3.8 billion years ago. So that life did emerge here suggests that a complex set of random conditions existed, perhaps after millions upon millions of failed combinations, when a single cell finally arose and eventually divided. So the fact that we haven't heard from anyone else suggests that the emergence of life is actually very hard and very rare. So hard, in fact, that we may be the only form of intelligent life in the observable universe. The other possibility is that the Great Filter exists in the future. That is, if life is actually quite likely to emerge, then for us not to have heard from it suggests that alien civilizations advance to a certain point and then disappear. They reach a peak of evolutionary development but then die out before you receive their signals or their visitors. So the great filter exists in the time between advanced civilization, as we think of ourselves, and the creation of technologies that would allow interstellar travel. It may be that when civilizations reach a point of sophistication, that their level of existential risk—that is, their ability to terminate their own existence inadvertently or otherwise—becomes one hundred percent. That may sound ridiculous, but think of it. Here on our precious planet, we have created tens of thousands of nuclear bombs with enough power to destroy every living thing on Earth a million times over. And that potential still exists. What other technologies are we yet to discover that could pose the same or even greater existential risk to us now? The idea that it is inevitable that a civilization will advance to such a point that it annihilates itself is not that far-fetched. So why is it Bostrom is so concerned about finding life on Mars? Well, think about it. If we think that life in the universe is extremely rare then to find it on Mars would suggest the opposite. If it is so rare that it only pops up in the most infinitesimal of cases, then to find it on Mars would be highly improbable. To find life has evolved independently on the nearest planet to us would suggest that not only are we really lucky, but that life is actually far more common than we realised. It must be the case that the conditions for life are far broader than we thought, and the universe is in fact teeming with it. So this would suggest that the great filter, which must be passed for life to emerge, does not exist in the past, It must exist in the future. For otherwise, if life is so abundant, then we would surely have seen or heard from it by now. But we haven't, so that can only mean that the great filter exists after life reaches a level of technological sophistication that is at least what we have achieved, and probably a bit further on. But because we have not heard from anyone else, advanced civilization must always bring about their own demise, and as that has not happened to us yet, there is virtually a 100% certainty that we are headed there, and in a hurry... I can sum up the argument again. We haven't seen any evidence of life anywhere else in the Milky Way or even beyond. That means that life is either very rare or that if it is abundant that when it reaches a level of technological sophistication that it could begin to communicate or travel beyond its own planet or solar system it somehow goes extinct. If we were to find life on Mars that would tell us that life is actually very abundant in the universe as it has emerged quite independently of life on Earth but just next door. But because we haven't heard from anyone else, that life must go extinct before it gains the ability to communicate or travel over the vast distances of space required to reach us. And as we are on the way to achieving those things, it suggests that we too are also nearing our own extinction if we were to discover any signs of life, either current or in fossil form on Mars or any other planet in our solar system for that matter. Not finding life is great news, because it means that life is indeed rare, and that we are excelling at it, and our future potential is limitless. In Bostrom's words, the silence of the night sky is golden, in the search for extraterrestrial life, no news is good news, it promises a potentially great future for humanity. Unfortunately, our ongoing observations of Mars with probes and rovers have uncovered increasingly promising signs of life, water, metabolites and methane emissions, among others. Two scientists are about to reveal just how close we are to finding life on Mars, so maybe Bostrom's argument is more than just a thought experiment. When talking about space exploration, a subject which interests me a great deal, you'll find competing perspectives. One that we should, and one that says that we shouldn't. A common refrain is that there are so many problems here on Earth that we would be better placed to invest our time, money and scientific efforts to solve those instead. And that is a good point. But unfortunately, I think it's wrong. And here's why. This either-or argument makes the claim that we can't do both. We can't both invest energy and resources into leaving the planet, and solving the problems at home. But that isn't actually the case. We do many things, all the time, every day. Some further our pursuit of knowledge, some address social issues, climate issues, issues of nature and issues of society. We do all of these things, and we never ask, why do we not stop doing so many different things and just focus on one thing? Perhaps the closest we ever came to achieving such single-minded focus was during the world wars, but fortunately, we live in some of the most peaceful times in human history and we can afford to spread our focus more broadly. But there are facts that support my argument that we can both explore space and tend to the pressing needs here on Earth. In 2017, a record $27.3 billion US dollars was allocated to humanitarian responses by a number of countries. In the same year, the United States spent $46 billion on foreign aid and the International Red Cross had an income of $1.8 billion and has spent virtually all of it. Think Tank, the Climate Policy Initiative, estimates between $510 and $530 billion was invested in climate finance that year. Meanwhile, NASA funding for 2017 was $19.5 billion. There was plenty of money to go around. Space is expensive. Of that, there is no doubt. But we have no way of both quantifying the value of space exploration or understanding what would be achieved if we don't do it. Humans and exploration go hand in hand. It's in our DNA. We are inquisitive by nature, we set out to discover and to understand. Yes, we also exploit and pillage, but the pursuit of knowledge is generally led by explorers. The pillaging tends to come later. Should we not explore for fear of the consequences? Or rather, should we apply ethics and morality to our exploration so we can make great leaps that benefit all of humanity? The technological spin-offs, cooperation and collaboration, and the inspiration of generations characterise and define space exploration as we know it today and the investment in space made by previous generations continues to pay scientific dividends. For instance, nitrogen isotopes found in soil samples collected on the final moon mission, Apollo 17, show evidence of a major change in solar activity some 500 million years ago. This happens to coincide with a period of enormous proliferation of life on Earth, known as the Cambrian Explosion. So understanding how changes in the sun have influenced the history of the Earth may also answer one of humanity's most important questions. Just how did life on Earth come to be? Space exploration is not about exclusivity. It's not a selfish endeavour which benefits few. It benefits all of us in myriad ways. Your mobile phone, your television, your GPS, your weather forecasts, Google Maps, your food and water. All of the things we take for granted in everyday life owe their abundance and convenience to the investment in the exploration of space. We may not be living in moon bases just yet, but we still gain more than we could possibly quantify from accepting Kennedy's challenge to land man on the moon and return him safely to the Earth. The generation before mine watched this Neil Armstrong took his famous first step on the moon, and I hope my generation will watch the first steps in Mars in high definition. Think of the sense of unity when we watch those steps, the first human to set foot on a planet that is not our own. Elon Musk, the eccentric billionaire mastermind of Tesla and SpaceX, is changing the way we think about what we can achieve and with how much. In a few short years he has commercialised space and massively reduced the cost of entry. Now he has his sights set on Mars. Oh, and he's also led the rise of electric vehicles, a trend which has been followed by virtually all of the major car manufacturers. He feels a sense of urgency for humans to become an interplanetary species, and not necessarily for the romantic reasons that I expound, but for the simple reason of survival. As Nick Bostrom fears our extinction at our own hand, Musk wants us to have options to alleviate the existential risk we face on this planet from our own unfettered development. If we are to agree that life is precious, and that our life as humans is even more precious still because of our potential and the capability we have as custodians of the Earth, then to explore space is our obligation, to ensure our own survival and to uncover the secrets of the universe which we can then use to fix the mess we've created here and in so doing reduce the suffering among the many who will remain behind. Discovery is what we humans do. We are natural seekers of knowledge, and what greater source of knowledge is there than the heavens and the mysteries of the universe? If we can unravel mysteries on a cosmic scale, perhaps we will gain a greater understanding of who we are, of how unique and precious life is, and what we should do with it. If our greatest achievement is to ensure our survival, then we are obligated to look to the skies and to travel beyond our earth. But let's just hope we don't bump into anyone else. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. You can find us on Facebook at the Here and Now podcast or Twitter at Here Now podcast. Go ahead and subscribe to the podcast to keep up to date with all of our latest episodes and be sure to give us a rating at the Apple Podcasts app. You can reach out to me via the pages or at the email, email now at gmail.com.